It's Thursday, December 15th, and you are listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Bredis, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow and Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California Undermined web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Elihu Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and the Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Hanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California Undermined. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Lee, let's tee up this episode with your upcoming column for California on Your Mind, which describes the factors that contribute to residents in the Golden State paying $2 higher for gasoline than the rest of the country. Lee, why is gas in the state so darn expensive? Jonathan, gas prices in California approached, um, Bill, did did they they get close to $7 in the Stanford area? Certainly in Southern California, they were getting close to $7. It topped seven dollars. Is actually not to get too inside baseball here, Lee. There is a self, uh, not a self serve, but a full serve uh, station not far from Stanford. It's in an area called Sharon Heights, and they kind of. I don't want to say they prey on senior citizens there, but it's sort of a, a niche audience where um, elderly people in their very nice cars have people pump their gas for them, and they were charging about seven and a half dollars a gallon. Seven and a half dollars. Well, yeah, it, it, near me, self serve was was even in the less expensive cha- stations was up over six fifty at one point. And Jonathan, you know, about uh, ten years ago, California gas prices were about thirty cents higher per gallon than the rest of the country, and that thirty cents was was roughly split between higher California gas taxes and also the additional refining costs for California's unique formulated blend of gasoline that produces less nitrous oxide and some volatile organic compounds. Um, California is the only state that uses this type of gas. Now, fast forward 10 years, and we've got a gas premium that was over $2.60 a gallon this, this past fall. So, um, so that premium has risen uh, somewhere close to almost a factor of 15. And not that long ago, the California Air Resources Board held a held a um, a meeting in which the purpose of the meeting was to find out why prices were so high. And really, it was it was to use their bully bully pulpit to try to jawbone down gas prices coming from the California refiners. Uh, and as we noted earlier, none of those refiners showed showed up to the meeting. Uh, and the, the regulators threw up their hands and said, this is, this is nuts. This is just not right. Um, California Governor Gassim, Gavin Newsom, um, you know, wants to impose, uh, you know, Bill, you'll get into this, I think, more. Um, but he wants to impose a de facto tax on what he would call excess profits from refiners. But that's not really what's going on. This is really just a matter of supply and demand. And when we look at what's happened in California the last 10 years, that 30 cents has ballooned to $2.60. Where did that come from? Well, in 2013, California passed a cap and trade program that requires businesses that emit carbon emissions greater than the threshold level to buy permits. And those permits add about 24 cents a gallon to, to the cost of gasoline. Two years later, the California Air Resources Board decided to implement another regulation, which was a low carbon intensity regulation, which meant that 
California refiners had to do a di- jump, jump through additional hoops, and that added another 22 cents a gallon. Hmm. Two years later, uh, California decided to raise its excise tax by 17 cents a gallon and index it to inflation. So taxes and regulations are continuing to push up the price of gas. And just as an aside, California, uh, California um, state gas taxes at 79 cents a gallon um, are about 40 cents per gallon higher than the average in the country. Now, you might think that the state with the highest gasoline taxes and the tax revenue from, from, from those taxes is supposed to be used to maintain and repair roads and invest in new infrastructure. Well, California has the 49th, 49th worst roads in the, in the country. Highest gas taxes, 49th, uh, 49th worst roads. Um, you know, so prices continue to go up. Um, and what regulators and Governor Newsom just don't seem to be able to realize is that the state has legislated the industry out of existence in about 12 years. In 2035, right. California has chosen to ban the sale of new gasoline-powered autos and light trucks. Um, not only that, three years, about three years from now, um, nearly half of all cars sold will have to be zero emission vehicle cars. So there simply is no future for fossil fuels in this state. The supply of gas is dropping enormously. No surprise there. Taxes, regulations, and the state has outlawed, has essentially outlawed the industry. The the industry is living on borrowed time. Meanwhile, demand is way up. So demand goes up, supply goes down, price goes up. There's no surprise about that. And I did some digging and I was shocked to find that if you go back 40 years, there were 43 refineries operating in uh, operating in the state, refining crude oil and turning it into California's particularly special blend of gasoline. Today, there's only 13 refineries that are operating. Right. And you know you've you've seen uh, you've seen population rise uh, by by a factor of uh, about sixty percent in those forty years. Um, so there's no there's no surprise why prices are up. And ironically, we're losing refineries to regulatory favorites of what we call biodiesel. So two uh, three refineries recently went off online recently in the last few years. They're being retrofitted from crude-to-oil refining capacity uh, plants to producing biodiesel. And um, and they're doing that because federal and state tax incentives uh, are worth a whopping $1 per gallon to produce that biodiesel. Right. So what we have is a state that's decided to go really long on renewables. It's punished fossil fuels. And, you know, who's left holding the bag? Well, California taxpayers and particular lower and middle income households that really can't afford to pay more for gasoline. Lee, let me ask you a political question here. I'm looking at AAA's uh, prices right now. So the AAA national average uh, for gasoline right now today, uh, December 15th, uh, for the entire country, $3.19 a gallon. Um, California right now, it's $4.46 a gallon. 
but if you go back uh, a month ago, it was $5.42. June the 14th was the high water mark, Lee, $6.43 a gallon. The price of gasoline is actually going down in California. Um, so here are lawmakers kind of swimming against the tide, if you will. They are hell-bent on doing something to punish gasoline manufacturers in California at the same time the price is going down. Isn't what's really going on here, Lee? This is just really about a very juicy target, which is big oil. Yeah, it is, Bill. It is. And prices are down. Uh, prices are prices are not only high in California, they're very volatile because we have so few refineries that when one goes offline, either for maintenance or for repair, supply drops further, prices go yep. up. That is and, one issue. And, and in California, it does get complicated because you have a winter blend and a summer blend of gasoline to, to further complicate the conversation. But again, the point is, while the prices, you know, in June, you had the spike and the legislature and the governor offered their middle class tax relief, which I have not seen a dime of, by the way, as I don't think you guys have either. Um, but here they are now and the price is down, you know, $2 a gallon. But yet here they are hell bent on doing something. Yeah, yeah. No, this, this this is great politics. It's all about big oil. It's about uh, it's about painting a narrative of um, of lack of competition and a cartel and taking advantage of helpless motorists. And Bill, interestingly enough, um, there was I can't remember if a lawsuit was filed, but a judge ruled that there was no collusion among producers that this was simply a matter of supply and demand. There's not, <laughs> there's very limited supply right now. And, you know, Bill, what's, I think what we're going to have to accept over the next several years, uh, but, you know, <laughs> until people get into those zero emission vehicles, which, which by the way, right now are, are extremely expensive out the door. Uh, electro vehicles are very expensive. Until that happens, gas prices are going to be high because, no one's no one's going to invest in additional refining capacity. California can't use gas from any other state. If it does import gas, it's well, it comes all the way from South Korea, and it takes you know it, it can take it can take two months to get here, and it's very expensive to ship that fuel. So very very high gasoline prices, uh, in my opinion, are going to be a way of life for us until we all uh, enter those zero emission vehicles uh, sometime around twenty thirty five. So, Lee, what we're getting into now is a very Shakespearean exercise in California politics and government, which is what is in a word, and that word would be tax. And this is important because to pass a tax in California, the legislature needs a supermajority, and there are members uh, on both sides of the aisle who do not want to vote on a tax here. Uh, but yet you have the governor throughout his Twitter feed using the word windfall profit tax at all times. Uh, we now call it a, quote, maximum gross gasoline refining margin, Lee, which uh, it means basically this, if refining um goes past its margin, uh, then the California Energy Commission can impose a civil penalty that goes into a quote-unquote price-gouging penalty fund that supposedly would get kicked back to consumers. But, Lee, this sure sounds like a windfall profit tax, doesn't it? Yeah, that's uh, that's what it is, Bill. And, and what's going to happen is that that will raise the price of gasoline even more. Um, right. The uh, I mean, every economic reason I can think of suggest that that tax is going to almost be exclusively almost exclusively borne by consumers it's not going it's not going to take money out of the pockets of those refiners it's going to take money out of the pockets of consumers some of them might receive dollars back in their pocket but you know i really wouldn't bet on that 
So I like where this is going, Lee. So you, as you keep writing, you just we kind of see like the noose, the noose closing on people in California. You hop in your car to go out and get food. You have to fill up your car with gas. Gas is going to be more expensive. Let's say you want to go get some fast food, as you've written about for California in your mind. Fast food's about to become more expensive in California. So, you know, where else is the government going to create misery? It really is hitting lower and middle income households substantially. The uh, yeah, two weeks ago I wrote about for California on your mind. Wrote about um, AB two five seven, which which um, at some level, the bill was shocking. It was a bill that, um, you know, you wrote about in your column this week about, um, you know, the supermajority in the in the state assembly and the state right. Senate. Um, despite the supermajorities, AB 257, which creates a politically appointed council for um, to, re- to essentially regulate every aspect of labor relations in the fast food industry, it only passed by one vote in both the assembly and the Senate. Um, and this is, uh, yeah, get ready, get ready for the Big Mac and uh, and your Enchiritos. And uh, you know, I don't do fat fast food bills, so I'm 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 spacing out here on my other on my other favorite uh, uh, items from fast food restaurants. But uh, those prices are going to be rising remarkably because fast food restaurants, at least those that that belong to a franchise with um, at least. Um, at least 100 uh, franchisees might have to pay as much as $22 an hour for labor. They're not gonna be able to choose their workers hours. They're gonna have to have this political council um, set the working conditions. Um, it's gonna be a nightmare. And, it's some, and what it's gonna do is it's gonna accelerate automation industry that is already experiencing a lot of automation. So a lot more jobs are gonna be killed by that. And getting into the politics is Lee, what you're gonna have pun intended is a food fight. And the fast food industry in California is going to go to the ballot and push back. And Lee, this is kind of becoming the California way, as we saw with AB5 and other matters, that when a when a questionable dodgy law gets passed, the industry has to go to the ballot and knock it back up, knock it back. Yeah, yeah. And, and Bill, it, uh, you know, from a political standpoint, uh, you know, it continues to be a head scratcher for me because a lot of these regulations, um, I mean, it's obvious who they're, it's obvious who's being favored here, labor unions. Um right. Businesses that uh, uh, fast food restaurants that agreed to be unionized, agreed to agreed to collective bargaining, are exempt. They're exempt from the political council's uh, dictates. Um, this is all about a favored labor unions. It really punishes. Um, it really punishes a lot of Californians who the supermajority Democratic Party. Yeah, contend, contends to support and contends to have their back, that they're pushing a lot of regulations, a lot of taxes that are really damaging their constituents. Uh, gentlemen, let's uh, let's move on to uh, Governor Newsom. Uh, the governor visited uh, the California-Mexico border on Monday to discuss immigration reform. This comes one week after President Biden told reporters that there are more important issues uh, than than the uh, than the border. Uh, the governor, Governor Newsom, toured a testing uh site of vaccination and resource center in Cal- in California and was joined by uh, the governor of Baja, California, Marina de Pilar Avila Almeida, who, to visit a migrant shelter in Mexicali. The governor said, quote, California has invested roughly $1 billion over the past three years to support the health and safety of migrants as well as the surrounding border communities, but we cannot continue to do this work alone. It is long last time for Republicans in Congress to engage on real solutions to meet the public safety, public health, and humanitarian issues mm-hmm. at our border and in our immigration system. Uh, meanwhile, Governor Newsom has indicated that he's worried that the Biden administration's expected lifting of Title 42 
which it makes it which makes it easier to deport undocumented migrants may result in a flood wave of migrants to California. Um, gentlemen, is Newsom generally worried about illegal immigration or is he once again attempting to step into the national spotlight? Bill? <laughs> Next question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, so I don't know if the governor plays pool, but what he's done here is uh, is uh, pulled off a, a rather magnificent bank shot in this regard. He goes to the border. He crosses the border. Um then comes back in. So he, A, shows frustration with the status quo of immigration uh, in the border crisis and talks about the aforementioned uh, Title 42, which for those who are familiar with it, Title 42 grants the government emergency powers uh, uh, during a health crisis the Trump administration uses to turn back people to the border, saying that you just can't let people in if they're going to possibly um, you know, you know, contribute to the health crisis. But that's now going to expire and the expectation is there'll be a flood of people coming across the border and what to do. And so this is what Newsom is tapping into. So number one, he should shows frustration with the situation at the border. Number two, we go to his Twitter feed. He dings the GOP saying, hey, the president of the United States has a compassionate approach to this and the awful Republicans don't. Number three, he does what he's very good at. He gets in the news. He's in newspapers all across America for being at the border because it is something kind of newsworthy to see a prominent Democrat actually show up at the border and address the situation. And then four, it gets into what you alluded to, Jonathan, which is the presidential speculation, because what is he doing? He is kind of dinging Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, who are both notably absent from ever going near the border. So it just stokes the ongoing 2024 Newsom speculation. Uh, now, Lee, what I really do uh, enjoy here is kind of the irony in this situation. The governor is now absolutely worked up about illegal immigration. And for the past five years, ever since California declared itself a sanctuary state, and really in years before that, when the state offered all kinds of services to illegal immigrants, it's been something of a haven for illegal immigration. So now all of a sudden, the governor seems to have a problem with this situation. Yeah, isn't that uh, ironic, isn't it? Yeah. A sanctuary state, uh, and now the governor is worried about uh, illegal immigration. And, um, you know, Bill, I uh, I just had to shake my head when I saw him uh, when I saw him hitting on Republicans about the failure of the country to pass immigration reform. Um, Bill hasn't uh, in the in 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 2021 and 2022 um, seemed to me that with a Democrat in the White House, Democrat House representatives and effectively Democratic majority. Um, in the Senate with Harris casting the tie-breaking vote, seems like immigration reform is there for the taking for the Democrats, and somehow it's the Republicans' fall. Well, it was never a priority for the Democrats, but one thing which people need to understand is the governor of California has leverage in this situation. He is technically a border governor, as is the governor of Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Florida. Uh, you even lump the governors of Illinois and New York into this because they have immigrant populations as well. And I'm not going to go back in the Wayback Machine to when I worked in Sacramento in the 1990s and I worked for Pete Wilson and he put together a coalition of border governors. This is Republicans and Democrats who went to Washington and they had one thing in common. They wanted help from the federal government, the same thing Newsom is asking for right now. But you don't see Gavin Newsom doing this. You don't see him reaching out to Governor Abbott in Texas or Governor DeSantis in Florida and said it's just the opposite. He beats them up whenever he can. They're pinatas for him for political opportunities. So I would just say if Governor Newsom were really serious about this problem, he would have a different approach rather than mugging for the cameras to actually try to put together some sort of coalition of governors and try to exert influence that way. Yeah, this is classic Gavin Newsom. Um, he has a lot to say. He says it very confidently. And at the end of the day, solutions aren't implemented solutions aren't even really aren't even really suggested 
And Bill, you know, if you look beyond the if you look beyond the United States, um, Europe now is dealing with a horrendous immigration crisis. You look mm-hmm. in Germany, um, Scandinavian countries, particularly Sweden. Those are countries that took in a lot of refugees. Uh, and this is before what is going on in Ukraine. And you're seeing massive unemployment, um, substantial rise in crime in those countries. Any sensible country, um, any sensible country controls its borders. It's, this is not a political issue uh, per se. It's a national security issue. It's a common sense issue. Um, but year after year, we continue to kick the can down the road. And um, yeah, Gavin is doing a good job making political hay. But again, the um, the hallmark of um, of Gavin, in my opinion, is that lots and lots of words are spoken. Um, and those, those rattle around our brains. And uh, months later, years later, nothing ever changes. There's one other thing you're seeing here, Lee, and that's uh, it's early to mid-December now, and the governor's been spending time behind closed doors with his Department of Finance aides going through the budget, which he'll have to introduce in January, their proposal. The budget gets uh, passed in June and acted in July. But right now, he's looking at the numbers for next year, and the numbers aren't very good right now. There's a shortfall of anywhere from $25 billion uh, going north from there. And he touted in one of his press releases that the state of California recently spent about a billion dollars in kind of making California kind of a softer landing pad for people coming here. Uh, he doesn't have a billion dollars to spend now because uh, California is running in the red. So I think this is part of what drives us as well, that just we just can't spend money like we used to in these situations. No, no, the uh, the state largesse is gone. Yeah, we're looking at, uh, yeah, we're looking at deficit. Yeah, yeah I, I think the last the last official suggestion was something like $25 billion. Um, it might be much higher than that. Uh, it's so hard to predict. Um, <laughs> that $25 billion deficit came on the heels of a, nice, of a $97 billion predicted surplus. So California could be facing a sea of red ink. And Bill, you're absolutely right. The dollars available to devote to this um, are not going to be there. And if you want some more money from Washington, Lee, good luck. As you mentioned, yeah. it's now it's going to be a Republican House. They will have two words for him and they won't be Merry Christmas. Uh, Pete Wilson asked for more money and repeatedly got shot down. He filed lawsuits. Um, Newsom doesn't really have a, a lot of options here. But, you know, welcome to part of the immigration conundrum where if you're a state, you're kind of left holding the bag financially. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, gentlemen, COVID-19 is back in the news. Um, in particular, uh, Barbara Ferrer, mm-hmm. LA's public health chief, says that she will call for an indoor mask mandate if daily hospital admissions rates uh, reach 10 per 100,000 residents and the percentage of hospital beds used by COVID patients exceeds 10%. Uh, gentlemen, will this be met with stiff resistance from Angelinos? And if COVID-19 comes back with a vengeance, will California implement a new and improved public health response? Um I don't live in Los Angeles. I live in Santa Clara County, where um, our public health official is Sarah Cody. And every time I see her on TV, I I just want to hit the mute button because you just fear what she's going to say. And I imagine Lee down in Southern California, Barbara Ferrer is um, greeted with the same kind of uh, <laughs> dislike when you see her come on TV. But you know, here's here's the problem in a nutshell. I think uh, last summer, Los Angeles County talked about doing indoor masking, and the cities of Long Beach and Beverly Hills, and I believe Pasadena, Lee. I'll push back saying the county may want to do this. We're not going to go along with the program. So um, the county health official may roll out statistics, and she has all these different guidelines for when uh, masking would implement it. It's based on percentage of population and um, hospitalization and so forth. But 
getting it into the population is going to be a challenge. People, once they got their mask off, they don't want to put them back on. And it's going to be in part, I think, Lee, a challenge of trying to educate the public and tell them there's legitimate concern. People are thinking, I've had COVID. I probably built up antibodies. I've had booster shots uh, against it. So why do I live in dread of it? Maybe I had COVID and survived it. So I just think between number one, just the public not wanting to go back to masks, Lee, is going to be a problem. But then secondly, I'm not sure if California really learned any lessons, Lee, from its past experience with the lockdown. Uh, in terms of education, we have leadership that denies that uh, lockdowns for kids was a bad thing. Uh, businesses, are, are, are we going to treat them any differently? So I, I just wonder if we're going to kind of stumble around in the dark like we did in 2020, if this happens again in 2023. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be very difficult to get people to uh, to cooperate with with measures that are anything other than relatively mild. Um, the lockdown was terrible. Uh, Bill, as you mentioned, it had enormously deleterious effects on kids that, that, that yes, are being conveniently denied by, by some in California politics. I just don't see how people are going to want to be in that situation again. And the variants that are operating right now are, uh, have mutated, they're different. Um, death rates are much lower. Um, I, I suspect there's still substantial risk for older populations and, and vulnerable populations, people with pre-existing conditions, but <laughs> they can pass these regulations. I don't think there's gonna be, I don't think people are gonna be going along with those very much. Um, and Bill, you know, it, it, not, not to make this political, but um, but in 2020, in the 2020 election, a lot of political hay was made uh, out of COVID. And I checked the numbers recently. Um, there have been over um, 100 million cases of documented COVID in the country. And since so many people are asymptomatic, you know, what that means is if you, if you add in the a plausible number for asymptomatic cases, then you know, the majority of people have had COVID. Um, and yet 650,000 of the cases that we've seen that have been documented have come since Biden's inauguration. Um, and when we talk about California possibly declaring an emergency, uh, the Biden administration essentially said a few months ago, oh, the, pande the pandemic's over, we can kind of go about business as, as we like. Um, yet, the illness is still here, um, and Bill, we didn't talk about the fact that there's uh, a lot of boosters now available for the Omicron variant. Very, relatively few people have signed up for that, so there's right. <clears throat> there's a sense of complacency, and uh, I, I I don't see new regulations working well in Southern California. So question for you, Lee, if we see another wave of COVID, which sparks a shutdown lockdown in California, are we going to see another wave of people leaving California for other places with less draconian uh, reactions to the to the pandemic? A lot of people, a lot of businesses have left California for economic reasons. And if California does try to implement more severe restrictions than what we see going on in other states, yeah, that'll further, that'll further accelerate our losses. Yeah, I mean, I just figured this way. You're a business in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and you struggled to survive the last lockdown. Uh, but maybe you're getting back on your feet again. But now 2023, if it happens again, you just maybe can't survive another hit like this. And you decide that, you know, I just can't keep doing business in California. And the same for the workforce as well. And people just deciding that I want to live elsewhere. I don't want to go through this again. So we'll see. It'd be very interesting to go on to sites like Zillow, by the way, Lee, and see where states like Montana and Wyoming. And I have very good friends in, um, in uh, Southern California who are now moving to Vermont for in large part for this reason to see where Californians might be headed to next. 
Well, Bill, uh, yes, and this is uh, this this would be a particularly bad time for California because there is there is economic weakness, as we mentioned, in terms of the state budget, and the te- you know where are are those are those relief dollars going to be coming from Washington if California decides to implement severe severe restrictions or shutdowns? Um, when businesses were shut down, there was the employee, uh, employee uh, protection, uh, paycheck protection program. There's a lot of federal dollars uh, that really drove up the federal debt uh, that went to businesses' pockets and to people's pockets. Um, that's not going to happen this time. And right. California can't afford to can't, can't, California can't afford to pay businesses or pay additional unemployment benefits um, given the budget situation, even if they could figure out how to get those unemployment benefits into the pockets of the right people. They're not gonna have the money to do it. Uh, Bill, let's um, let's talk about your column uh, for California on your mind this week. Uh, you picked the winners and losers of the state in the past year. It's a pretty comprehensive laundry list encompassing, encompassing politics, culture, sports, entertainment, the environment, and the ecosystem. Um, but if you were to, if you were to sum it up, uh, could you tell us who the biggest winner is and the biggest loser, respectively? Um, I think I might start with Elon Musk, Lee, and I want to get your thoughts on Mr. Musk because he never ceases to fascinate. Uh, he is, I think he's become Gulliver in some regards. He's kind of become a gigantic figure. And I think with his war with Twitter, he might be like Gulliver getting tied down by the Lilliputians in this regard. But uh, I put Musk down as a winner in this regard um, in that he is fighting the good fight. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote that he uh, gave the other day. Quote, I'm not going to spend $44 billion to reinstate a, a satire blog. I did it. I purchased Twitter because I was worried about the future of civilization. So good for Elon Musk. He is putting his money where most people's mouths are. And he's trying to change things. Uh, so he's a winner in that regard. He's also a winner because he and uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida are now in the runner-up to Donald Trump as to who now thoroughly drives the left crazy. I mean, we can pretty much Trump's always going to have that uh, the position as long as he's around. But none of this is a good question to who's in the runner-up slot. And if it's not DeSantis, it's probably Elon Musk now. But I also put Musk in the loser category because uh, it's very funny. Our colleague Neil Ferguson uh, now has a nickname for Musk. He calls him the Pole Elon. Uh, in that, uh, like Napoleon, he might have, he might be looking at his Waterloo, and that Twitter might kind of, if not be his ultimate demise, it just may well it might be like Putin going to Ukraine. He just might have, you know, might have gotten himself into a conflict that maybe he can't get himself out of. Um, but Lee, I'm curious from your take as you watch this man um, in terms of what he is doing. It's you know, do you think he know? Do you think he knows what he's doing here? Because it's not just Twitter with him; it also ties into Tesla and his various businesses. And you know, by the way, he lost I think about 140 billion dollars in the last uh, couple of years. I think he once was worth about 320 billion dollars. Now it's to about 180. Uh, I could get by on 180 billion dollars, as I think uh, Lee and Jonathan could as well. But you know, he's had some struggles to go with the successes. Yeah, Bill, I'll I'll, uh, I'll take the crumbs off your plate from that 180 billion, if that's so. <laughs> that's okay with you. Well, you know, I'll put uh, I'll put Musk in the uh, in the winter category one year earlier when he decided to move from California to Texas. I think he saved himself uh, probably about two and a half billion dollars in state income taxes that he would have owed California had he remained in California following the sale of some um, of some Tesla stock and the and the accumulated capital gains that would have come from that. Um, you know that the the Musk and Twitter is fascinating. He, um, you know, thus far he's proved to be a visionary. Um, certainly one of the most influential people of our time, one of the most successful business people of our time. Remarkably 
bright person, really sees through a lot of things that others don't. You know, when he's playing the game of chess, um, so far he hasn't lost. Um, he certainly he certainly he certainly swept the board of California when he took a lot, hundreds of billions of dollars in tax credits in California and then picked up Tesla and moved it over to Texas where where there's no taxes. Um so I, I love what, you know, the, the quote you read from him, I love what, I, lo- I love that. I love yep. that he had that to say um, and that he's willing to make that investment. Um, I don't know enough about social media to have a good view of, of whether he's going to turn that around or not. I did an interview for a San, for a small San Francisco newspaper uh, a couple of weeks ago about people leaving, uh, people leaving Twitter and what the future of Twitter was. Uh, and you know, my main point <clears throat> in that interview was that social media things can turn on a dime. It's almost, uh, it's really almost whatever catches the fancy of users. Um, Twitter is still a major presence um, because the alternatives really haven't caught fire. Um, and I don't know what their traffic is, uh, you know, in the last in the last week or two. I, I think it's still really su- substantial. Um, and if we go by the old adage of uh, all, uh, was it all uh, all news is good, you know, a- any news story is a good news story if you're in the news. Um, then Twitter's Twitter's succeeding from that perspective. Um, I think he's, I think I think he's going to make a I think he's going to make a go of this based on what he's been able to do in the past, but. It's so hard to predict what happens to the world of social media. But a question, Lee, if you had $44 billion to devote to the quote-unquote future of civilization, would you spend it trying to turn around this one social media platform? Or what about, say, building – you could divide that into four ways and build four world-class universities around the around the globe. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that perhaps be a better use of your forty-four billion dollars if you're really concerned about civilization? Because now you're getting the question of educating people. Yeah, yeah, great point. Um, I think Musk loves social media. Uh, I don't know how many Twitter followers he has, but I suspect if he went on his on his Twitter account right now, I think we would see thousands, maybe 10,000s of tweets. He loves it. He loves to be the uh, gadfly. He loves to make these pronouncements. He loves to shake things up. Um, So, Bill, when you put it that way, we can create a number of major universities and really make it move the needle in terms of educating the populace versus having uh, versus having Twitter. Um, Yeah, I can't argue against that. One other uh, set of winners and losers I want to run by you, Lee. Um, I tapped uh, Bob Iger as a winner in 2022. He's the Disney CEO who is uh, returning to his job. And what I wrote was essentially Mr. Iger doesn't walk on water, but people at Disney pretty much think that he's a messiah in terms of coming in and um, running the company. Um, Now, Iger is a fascinating guy. He's been speculated uh, for all kinds of things. At one point, he was going to be our man in China as an ambassador. People thought he should run, should have run for president and so forth. Uh, But Lee, you and I have talked about him in the past in terms of his role in uh, Governor Newsom's ill-fated economic recovery task force. Uh, He walked away from it. Good for him because he was frustrated with the state dragging its feet over the reopening of Disney and theme parks. Um, So I put uh, Iger down as a winner, Lee, but then I put down as a loser, Disney, because yes, the mouse got its CEO back, but Disney had a really embarrassing thing happen to himself uh, recently, Lee. Uh, It put out an animated film called Strange World. 
and it just bombed at the box office. One of the reasons why it bombed is because it is basically family-friendly fare, but the film includes uh, Disney's first LGBTQ plus teenage character. And I just know anecdotally from um, my niece and nephew who took their little kids to the movie, they were horrified when they saw this. It was just too much for them to take in. Um, you just kind of wonder where Disney as a company is going right now in these very complicated times of movies and streaming and so forth. Uh, and by the way, Lee, there's a school of thought that what Iger is going to do as a grand gesture in 2023 is he is going to arrange for Disney to be sold to Apple. So what do you, what do you, how about them apples? <laughs> well, I didn't, I did I, I wasn't aware of that. That yeah. would, um, that'd be really interesting. Disney has struggled financially this year. And, you know, Disney has been one of the major woke capitalist businesses in America. And they really took it in the shorts on, uh, on their, on their animated film, Strange World. Um, and I, I think that was obvious that was going to happen. Just the number of, <laughs> the number of people in the country who are really invested in these in these social and cultural issues to the point of wanting it really, and I'm not passing judgment, but just simply speaking, there's just not a huge audience for that for, for, for that for that theme. There just isn't. People just don't have that level of interest or investment or commitment in it. So it doesn't surprise me that the film bombed. Uh, but the film bombing means that Disney's bottom line is really being is really being hit, and so uh, so suddenly they're bringing Bob Iger back. Um, Bill, do you, do you know do you know more about that potential Apple uh, Disney merger or acquisition? I I just know one thing that Apple sits on an incredible amount of cash right now. Although I was talking to Jonathan before the podcast, I own Apple stock, full disclosure, and I follow it like a hawk and it's getting beat up today in a typically bad day for the market. But Apple sitting on an incredible amount of cash right now. Uh, Apple has a real appetite to get into uh, more streaming and more content. And there's Disney is one of the kings of content right now. So it seems kind of a natural marriage. And Iger loves to do stuff like that. So some people think that it could happen in that regard. And Apple loves to buy things like Pixar anyway. So it could happen. Um, I'm not sure what kind of government oversight, if anything, would uh, merit as well or where Disney would go with content. I would note, by the way, that Disney is now messing around with the Marvel franchise, which, by the way, if you really want to mess with your constituency, start fooling around superhero films, which I don't know about you guys. I, I don't get those films to begin with, but I'm an old man, I guess. So, uh, But that could be a big story if Disney does end up getting sold to the mouse or the mouse gets sold to the Apple. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. It sounds like there would be substantial synergies between the two companies. And Disney made, um, you know, Disney made an enormous investment um, when they purchased uh, essentially what is the Star Wars franchise from uh, from George Lucas. Um, that, was, that was huge. That was huge for them. Um, yeah, that, uh, yeah. Let's let's keep our eye on that. That would be uh, that would be fascinating for, from a lot of uh, different perspectives if that was yeah. to take place. And then one final group of winners and losers I had, Lee. Uh, winners were fish. In California, the Klamath River, they're blowing up dams in the Klamath River, which is great news if you're a spawning salmon. Uh, but the loser would be California cattle. There is actually a satellite that hovers over California, uh, which spends part of its time, I kid you not, monitoring burps from cows to check for methane emissions. So uh, <laughs> we, just, we just make life miserable for cows in California. We're checking all times on their burps and their flatulence, and then we're messing around with fast food, which ties into cows as well. So not good to be cattle in California, I guess. You know, Bill, I'll uh, uh, I'll add in one um, one relatively well. I'll add in one winner and loser at the same time. The uh, the loser are Californians who would like to own a home but don't, 
California median home price right now, uh, according to Zillow, is $765,000. That's out of reach for roughly three quarters of California households. You know, the winner is that because, because California is ironically emptying out, because one reason is because of the high house prices and regulations and taxes and other issues we've discussed, that median price <clears throat> is down about 8% over the last year. Uh, so if, if people are willing to wait long enough, it's possible they might be able to afford a California home. Now, what I struggled with, Lee, is because I, I could not find a winner to go with the loser, but the loser I had was Kevin DeLeon. Kevin DeLeon, yeah. Kevin DeLeon, definitely a loser. So DeLeon is a Hispanic uh, <clears throat> member of the California uh, City Council. Uh, and I believe that he, uh, did he resign? No, he has not resigned, has he, Bill? No, he will not resign. And it's gotten to the point where he actually physically will not go to the, he has to sit in a different room for the city council because he will not go in the room to be heckled when he uh, when he appears. Uh, long story short, he was caught up in these uh, emails, which were just got awful in terms of just, you know, just making awful comments about minorities, all sorts of terrible ethnic slurs. And uh, some members of the council resigned in disgrace, but De Leon is hanging on to a seat. Uh, nobody has the gumption. I think President Biden, to his credit, actually called for him to step down, but De Leon will not step down. Uh, I'm not sure where the new mayor is on this or not, but he holds on to that position. And boy, it's just, uh, you know, guts of a burglar. He has he has literally become a uh, persona non grata. And, um, and Nuri Martinez, who was, uh, I think, the chair of the city council, um, <laughs> did step down. Uh, and she said just some um, awful, horrendous racist things uh, about Black people and also about uh, people from the Oaxacan state of Mexico. Um, and, you know, Bill, I'll throw in one more uh, uh into that group, which is uh, Gil Cedillo, who uh, who lost his lap, his his last council race, uh, who was also part of this conversation. It was a private, it was a private recording of the conversation that he and De Leon and Martinez had a few months ago about redistricting. And this is when all these uh, horrendous racial remarks came up. Um, and Cedillo uh, has the gall to uh, to write a letter saying that. Um, he is the victim, that he was not going to resign, uh, that he has been canceled, and that as a fellow from Boyle Heights, he was going to hang in there and fight for his people. And Bill, can you imagine, um, can you imagine if this had been, um, you know, a potentially a different race or a different type of situation? Um, he, uh, he spoke very brutally uh, about the people who wanted him to resign and that he was the one who was in this conversation um, that was absolutely horrendous. Uh, he's, he, is, he, he, is, he is a person unto himself now. And uh, I think voters spoke when they were removed from, from office. Yeah. Uh, one uh, winner I'd add to the category here would be uh, Aaron Judge, the New York Yankees uh, uber talented right fielder, the American League MVP. Lee, who... Um, Maybe understands a thing or two about markets and economics. Mr. Judge was approached by the Yankees before last season, was offered a seven-year, $210 million contract, $30 million. Again, the three of us could scrape by on $30 million a year. Um, but Mr. Judge bet on himself, and he went out and he had a landmark season. He uh, broke the American League record for home runs in a season. He then became a free agent, and the bidding began, and he worked the market to uh, – uh, it's best. Two California teams, the Padres and the Giants, uh, bid for his services. The Giants 
offered $360 million. The Padres offered, I think, $400 million, Lee and Jonathan. Uh, and Mr. Judge decided on $360 million from the New York Yankees. So uh, I don't know what Judge majored in. He went to Fresno State. Uh, I'm not sure what he majored in there, but he learned a thing or two in college. And Lee, I'd love to go back and look at Fresno State stats next year because, you know, universities love to show average salaries for majors in colleges. So whatever <laughs> whatever he majored in at Fresno State, that's going to be a pretty lucrative major. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yes, it will be. And um, I'm sorry we didn't get him, not only because it would have been fun to watch him play for the Giants uh, or the Padres, uh, but also, Bill, we could have used his tax dollars. He would be t- at 13.3% on that salary of uh, what it sounds like about $50 million a year, $45 million a year. Um, $40 million a year. This is actually uh, part of the fun of the judge watches. They called it Lee because you would see side-by-side columns of, okay, if he goes to New York, what does he have to pay in terms of taxes, in terms of city and state? And if he goes to California, what does he have to pay in taxes? And by the way, baseball players' taxes are exceedingly complicated because you go to a state like California, and if you play uh, baseball in California, even as a visiting player, you still owe the state of California taxes because you have technically profited from playing in California. So Yeah. Uh, Bill, you know, I uh, I remember seeing it was a couple of years ago. I can't remember if it was basketball or baseball, but, but a player saying, yeah, you know, I sometimes I sometimes think about pulling a blame when I come to California because I don't want to pay those California taxes. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's been a uh, dodge. A lot of players have tried over the years. They claim Nevada citizenship. Uh, there's a fellow named Brady Anderson who used to play for the Orioles way back when. And uh, he claimed he was a Nevada resident when, in fact, he was practicing his trade in Baltimore for most of the year. And the state of Maryland didn't look kindly. Uh, the great Derek Jeter tried this at one point, claimed he was a resident of Florida to get away from New York taxes. Uh, but here you have somebody turning away, uh, turning aside California for New York. So I don't know if that's a statement about California taxes or not, Lee. I think it's more a statement about the, the majesty of the New York Yankees than anything else. But again, you know, a little bit of a hit for California. <laughs> hit for California. Yeah. Um, our taxes don't look all that much worse than New York's. Um, Texas, yes. Uh, New York, not so much, not so much worse. Uh, so yeah, so wish we could have brought him here, but I understand the attraction of uh, of the Yankees and and the remarkable opportunities he probably has coming to him uh, as a member of the Yankees and being in New York. So Lee, it's our last podcast of the year. So um, why don't we wrap up with a couple of questions? One, just what have you learned in 2022? What's kind of your big takeaway for California for 2022? The estate has become unlivable uh, for many, many people. Um, essentially, those anyone making less than hundred thousand dollars a year is really going to be any household really struggles in the state. I keep waiting for people to really demand change, um, to demand policies that reduce the cost of housing, reduce the cost of gas, reduce the cost of energy. That reduce congestion, that make California more livable. Um, uh, you know, Bill, we've been doing this now for what four or five years. Um, I just I keep waiting for that day, and um, it's not happening. Um, I think Democrats have really been living, um, you know, shall we say a um, a gift from Donald Trump because Donald Trump is the gift that continues to give the Democratic Party. Um, you trot out that name, and it suddenly wallpapers over a lot of deficiencies that I think are associated with them, with, uh, with the Democratic Party. Um, and uh, if if that continues, if if Republicans continue to be seen as the as the party of Donald Trump, whether people like Trump or not, 
It's going to be very, very hard to have California break out of uh, its one party uh, majority. And um, whether you're right or left, I think it's not healthy to have a state just run so completely, absolutely empowered by one party. You need competition to have the best ideas come out. We're not seeing the best ideas come out in uh, California. So I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that we're not getting any type of sensible movement on the policy front here in California. It just it continues to go south. And that's why so many people and businesses are continuing to leave California. Okay, thank you. That ties in perfectly to my big takeaway from 2022, which is that monopolies make you lazy at the end of the day. Uh, Governor Newsom knew he was never threatened for re-election. He ran just kind of a joke of a campaign. He still got 59% of the vote. Our friend Lonnie Chen, our colleague, campaigned like crazy, ran a very good, diligent campaign. He's got about 44.5% of the vote. Every Democrat was breezed to election statewide in California. But because Democrats just are so comfortable with the existence and don't really work hard at it, they underperformed in California. This is one of my winners and losers, by the way. The winners were California Democrats for, of course, winning everything. But they were losers in that they didn't really win the races that counted. They didn't pick up House races uh, that they thought they might. They didn't flip seats in the Central Valley with David Valadeo and down in Southern California, the likes of Michelle Steele. And ironically, Lee and Jonathan, and you look at a Republican House coming in, it's due to two states. It's due to four House Republicans. Republicans being picked up in New York, four seats being flipped there, and the Democrats failure to flip about three or four seats in California. If the Democrats hold on to the New York seats, pick up the California seats, Nancy Pelosi is still the speaker next year. So that's my 2022 takeaway, Lee and Jonathan, monopolies make you lazy. But now, Lee, the question, what about 2023? What Give us one thing to look at for 2023 that's, that's on your radar. So for 2023 in California, you know, the big issue, I, I think, in, in my view, the two big issues are housing and education. Um, we are now spent, California, we're spending about $500,000 per classroom, uh, average K through 12. Performance is just abysmal. Only one out of four kids uh, is proficient. And that proficiency bar in math and English and science is really not very high. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're gen- we're raising generation after generation of kids that are just not going to be competitive for the best paying jobs. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to see if there's any kind of pushback uh, this falling from the momentum, momentum of COVID that led a lot of parents to be upset with public schools. So that's what I'm going to look for. Um, we saw a lot of parents actually run for uh, uh, school uh, school board seats in 2022. So I'm looking at education in 23. And then, of course, you know, I just mentioned a few minutes ago, median house price in California is, da- is down, I'll say down, December 65000 That's a drop, I think, of about 8%. It was well over $800,000 the previous year. We'll see if recently implemented laws are going to make a, make a dent in, uh, in California housing. I don't think, I don't think they will, um, particularly in the, uh, in the areas, in, in coastal California areas, Bay Area, Silicon Valley, Southern California coast. So uh, despite a lot of um, despite a lot of heat and a lot of laws being passed, I don't think they're going to have much of an effect. I think California will continue to be uh, to be in a very expensive state to live in. 
Yeah, I'm looking Lee, at the confluence of the governor's presidential ambitions and the uh, oncoming uh, fiscal train wreck, perhaps to be in Sacramento this summer. And uh, having lived through some of these myself, uh, it's much easier to spend money than it is to take it away from people. Uh, triage when it comes to California budgets is not pleasant. And for Newsom, this becomes very complicated because when you start cutting into the budget, you're cutting into Democratic interest groups. You're cutting into labor money. You're cutting into education money. Uh, you're cutting into public health money, if you will all of whom cry foul and uh, will make life very complicated for him if he wants to go national. So keep an eye on that in 2023 to see how he manages that and also just how patient he can be waiting for Joe Biden to make up his mind about running. Now, if Biden says he's running, uh, Newsom said he won't run. Um, and Newsom's not a fool. He knows there's no chance of going of taking down Biden. But if Biden does surprise us all and say he's not running, then I think Newsom's in. Because I'm just over the belief that you got to strike when the iron's hot, and he's much hotter iron coming off re-election than he would become 2028. Bill, you have any you have any inkling about whether about what Biden's going to do, or well, when he might uh, when he might announce? No, um, so he could he could drag this out into the summer if he really wanted to make life miserable. Part of the so there, so he said that he will talk to his family about it. There's a piece out today saying supposedly uh, Joe Biden's on board with this. So if the wife was on board, that means maybe he is. Um, I think he would probably announce in the spring um, if he's going to do it um, or not do it because you can't, you can't drag it out too late in the year. It really keeps the field from forming and all that. Uh, but now this ties to the question of his relationship with Kamala Harris. Um, if he really um, was close to Kamala Harris and wanted to help her, he would probably wait later in the year because that would make it very hard for someone like Newsom or Amy Klobuchar or some other aspirational Democrat to, to kind of build a national organization and get donors lined up. Whereas Kamala, who for the last year or so has been going around the country and trying to line up people, she'd be in a much more advantageous situation. So there you are. I do know this. I've uh, looked at a poll the other day. I think it's a Wall Street Journal poll where I think 67 percent of the country said they don't want Biden to run again. Sixty nine percent said they don't want Donald Trump to run again. So <laughs> good heavens. Yeah. Yeah. It. Uh, I mean, with uh, with a Republican House, there's really not much chance of a legislative agenda that he's going to be thinking about. Is there? I was trying to think about him as a lame duck if he, if he were to announce. But it doesn't sound like he has much of a chance to get much passed anyway, does he? No, not really. I think you're going back to the famous Obama words, I have a pen and I have a phone. And uh, so I think you'll see executive orders like crazy, which means that basically you're getting governed by executive order and ultimately judicial fiat or not. Um, but he does have a Democratic Senate, which is important in terms of nominations. And then also in the final thing to note here, uh, the contrast between the House and the Senate in 2023, where the House is going to investigate everything related to the Biden administration. And the Senate, I suspect, is going to investigate everything related to the Trump administration, because with 50, with the 51 to 49 advantage in the Senate, they now control committees, and those committees can now subpoena people, which they've not been able to do. So I think, yeah, you're looking very much as, I think, I think trench warfare comes to mind as an analogy, just two sides, <laughs> kind of lo two sides locked in for the next two years. Well, gentlemen, this has been a very interesting year of timely analysis. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Jonathan. Happy holidays, fellas. Well, you've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. Lee Ohanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. 
please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California on Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Haney write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroidis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.